0: Right. before we get started, I just want to say to both Caleb and Libby, you guys are wearing great flannels. I was told that you guys are right there, it looks great, great, great look, just wanted to say that. Um, for everyone else, uh, my name is Alex Sheets. So glad to be with you tonight. Um, so excited to continue walking through Exodus. Um, we're in a really big moment in Exodus. We're in Exodus 15, where it's a switch happening from, uh, from the Passover, from the plagues, from being in Egypt as they're moving out. And tonight is actually, it's kind of cool because it's kind of all about worship, We're going to be talking about singing, we're going to be talking about worship, talking about the Israelite song beforehand. And then at the end of it, we are going to get the chance to have worship too. Um, So that's our plan for tonight. Songs are a very important part of our lives. Um, There are moments, uh, every, every person has a guilty pleasure song. Every person has a genre that they connect to the most, whether it's rock and roll, whether it's uh, country music, and you like that, and we pray for you because you like country music and we don't understand. We pray for our country music people. Every person, every, remember we pray for them, we pray for our, our brothers and sisters. Um, every person has a genre that they connect with most. Um, songs are important to us. Each of us has memories that are connected to a song. For me, it was uh, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses. I remember going to school as a third grader listening to that song. And then another one that I'm not super proud of, um, in sixth grade, I listened to Ice Ice Baby every single day going to school in sixth grade. Those were dark times in many ways. Um, Our lives are interwoven with music. Songs are more than just things that we enjoy. Songs are also important for our identity. They remind us who we are. Um, You know this song, you sing it all the time. uh, Proud and immortal, bright shines your name. Oklahoma State, we herald your fame. Ever you'll find us loyal and true true to your alma mater. Go, folks! (laughs) Songs are important. It fills us with a sense of identity. Um, And songs are more than just identity. Songs are important for memory. Some events are so important, are so significant, that they are worthy of being memorialized in a song. In a major battle during uh, the War of 1812, there was a victory with the American troops over the British troops, because there's a second time that America fought Britain in its early stages. And this victory was so significant for the early country of America that it inspired a poet who is on a ship nearby looking at the fort, he penned these lines O oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave over the land of the free and the home of the brave. So significant that it had to be pinned with a song, and that song became our national anthem, which we sing all the time, and it reminds us, and it fills us with a sense of identity. Tonight, we're hearing a song. We're going to be reading a song, and we're going to be talking about a song, and then we're going to be singing um, afterwards. It is the first song recorded in the Bible. And it is significance. significant. The importance of this song, just to remind us where we're coming from and where this, this uh, how we get to this song, this is Exodus 15, and right before this moment in Exodus 14 and preceding, uh, God had been promising deliverance to his people. He'd been promising, I'm going to save you, I'm going to bring you out with a strong hand. And he, then he gives these plagues and he he has the Israelites cast out of Egypt and they get to a point on a riverside and Pharaoh is chasing them and there's an army bearing down upon them and they are scared out of their minds. They're hopeless because it looks like an army is going to crush and kill them and bring them back into perpetual slavery. Very, very bleak for them. And in in that moment, Moses says these words to those people, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. You need only be silent. The Lord will win this battle for you, his people. And then he did. He split the sea and they walked across. And then it said at daybreak, as the text says, at dawn's early light, the waters come over and they are on the other side and they see the army that was intent on destroying them dead on the other side. The army that was going to oppress them and destroy them and the people that God had redeemed in that moment, separated by a river. I just want to enter into this moment for a second. Okay. Like you just, we talk about scripture a lot, um, but it's important to use your imagination. Like, if you were in this scene, okay, if you were facing like imminent death, you're with your parents. You had just been released. You've got your cousins with you. You probably don't like them. You've been around them for a lot, but you only see them on on uh, on holidays. But you know they're here too. And hey, it's looking bleak for everyone. So you know, just bring them in. Um, your fate, You're scared. Army's coming at you, and then in a moment. In a moment, God makes what was so dangerous into life. God makes death into life. God makes slavery into freedom. What would you have done in that moment? You would have fought him. I would have lost my freaking mind. That's what I would have done. I would have celebrated. I would have danced. I would have, I don't know what I would have done. It was like death, and now it is life and freedom in a moment. From what God had done, I would have celebrated with all the joy that was in His heart. Guys, Um, and that's what the Israelites did. They sing a song in the moment back to God about what God had just did for them, and this is our text for today. It is called the Song of Israel, or the Song of the Sea. Sometimes it's called the Song of Moses, but you can get that confused with another part in Scripture, Deuteronomy 33-ish, so we'll just call it the Song of Israel. And there's three things to know about this text before we, we enter into it. The first thing is that this song is very, very significant to the Bible. This is the first song recorded, and it is one of, if not the, Last songs recorded in the Bible as well. It shows up again, oddly enough, in Revelation, the last book. It bookends Scripture with the people of God. It's kind of interesting. This, the phrases of this song show up all throughout the Bible. Uh, the phrase, The Lord is my strength and my song, became something of a national anthem for their people. We'll get to that later. Number two, this song was a response to what God had done. Um, God was the agent. They were the beneficiaries. Uh, the people were saved, and they had done nothing. They had done nothing, and they received their salvation from God, and they respond with singing. Saved people sing. It's, it's what they do. And it's what they did. It, it's a response. Worship is a response to God. We'll probably talk about that later. I'm not sure, um, but it's more to note Three, this is a dramatic retelling of the events of Exodus 14. So in Exodus 14, we have narrative. And in Exodus 15, it switches from narrative to poetry. And what we are listening to is Israel's understanding of what just happened in Exodus 14. It speaks of God as a warrior. God destroying with his very breath. It is retelling the events through the eyes of faith, because sometimes you need the eyes of faith to see things for what they truly are. That's what we're coming to when it comes to this. So we're going to read all of Exodus 15, and then we're going to take a moment and focus on three major themes in it. We can't do all of it. I'm going to be going long anyway, so I'm going to try and be booking it in moments. Um, But we'll focus on three themes in it. One quick thing I want to note before we enter in that this is the first worship song found in the Bible, so it is inspired scripture. These themes that we're approaching is how God wanted his people to praise him. It's kind of interesting to think about. God showed him, God showed his people how to praise, and he he recorded it so that we could keep it. My question for tonight, for us, especially as we move to the second half, is, do you sound like this? Does your worship line up with the Bible? Do you praise like the Bible praises? That's my question. We'll circle back to that later. For now, Exodus 15, read it once, circle back to it later. 15.1 says this. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. They said, I will sing to the Lord. For he is highly exalted. He has thrown the horse and its rider into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariot and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The floods covered them, they sank to the depths like a stone. Lord, your right hand is glorious in power. Lord, your right hand shattered the enemy. You overthrew your adversaries by your great majesty. You unleashed your burning wrath. It consumed them like stubble. The water heaped up at the blast from your nostrils. The current stood firm like a dam. The watery depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire will be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword, my hand will destroy them. But you blew with your breath, and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? You stretch out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. With your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. You will guide them to your holy dwelling with your strength. When the peoples hear, here, they will shudder. Anguish will seize the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be terrified. Trembling will seize the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan will, be, will panic. Terror and dread will fall on them. They will be as still as a stone because of your powerful arm. Until your people pass by, Lord, until the people whom you have purchased pass by, you will bring them in and plant them on the mountain of your possession. Lord, you have prepared the place for your dwelling. Lord, your hands have established a sanctuary. The Lord will reign forever. That is our text for tonight. That is the song of Israel. So stanza one, our first main theme we're going to be looking at is uh, verses 1 through 3, the Lord is Israel's personal Savior. The Lord is Israel's personal Savior. Exodus 15.2, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, there's an Abraham reference again from all the way back then. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. Israel's personal Savior. The Lord is my strength and my song. It's a common phrase. It comes up in different parts of Scripture, like Psalm 118, verse 4. Isaiah 12, 2. Psalm 28, 7 says the same thing. This phrase lived on. They sang it over and over again. The Lord is my strength and my song. Kind of like land of the free and the home of the brave. The belief arose among the people that God would give strength to his people when the time arose. When the people were desperate, God would be there for them as a strength and as a song and sometimes sing as a shield. Why did they believe that? Why did they say the Lord is my strength and my song? Is it because as some would say that he saved them in a spiritual sense? That this text is like a, a myth, not really true history, but it's like a spiritual truth that like people reflected on later times? Is it an exaggeration that uh, um, the Israelites actually defeated the Egyptians so badly that they basically had the Lord on their side? You know, it, it was such a, such a butt-kicking that it was, it was basically God working through them. Did they write it because it was a cool phrase? You know, Moses was writing that down, and they're like, man, that's a really cool bar. You know, I'm just going to, let's keep that, you know. Let's, let's put that in. Was it any of those things? No. Why did they say the Lord was their strength in their song? Why did they keep saying that and keep believing that and their hope foster in the future? It was because God literally, historically, saved his people on that seashore. God literally became their literal salvation from literal death. And now, the nations will continue to know that God watches over them and they will trust in him. Because he has revealed his character. He is their strength. He is their song. They will trust in the God who has saved him. Salvation and redemption in a historical context means that God saves from death and slavery. It means that God literally, in that moment, from Egypt, he brought them out, and he saves them from death and slavery. Christians, your salvation is tied to the cross. When Jesus literally, historically died, he saved you from death and slavery by his death on the cross. And we can say, as they said all the way back then, that Jesus is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Salvation and redemption from slavery— Became concrete in this moment, and the people of God trusted in Him. From then, as you can see, how they use Scripture, Israel, God is Israel's personal Savior. Now, there are many worship songs today. I'm, I, don't know, I don't know if this is weird to say as a pastor, but I'm not really a, not really a worship guy. So you, some of your people are probably more into worship than I am. So you could you could actually correct me on this. I could be totally wrong. Um, But of the many worship songs today, um, there's common themes. There's themes that are like praising God for his beauty, his goodness, his love, mercy, faithfulness. You've heard the worship songs. You can go look up a worship playlist and you'll see pretty common themes throughout it. The songs that we're going to sing tonight might have those, those common themes. How many themes? of our songs today would be included of what they sing about God next. Because remember, we're looking to the Bible for how they worshiped God. We sing about praise, about love, mercy, faithfulness. And there's, there's parts of God, parts of his attributes that we, we get a little uncomfortable with and we don't really find ourselves singing about, if you know what I mean. well, no, you'll find out what I mean. But remember, we're looking at the Bible, and it is clear that in this moment, Israel, unreservedly, with one voice, praises God for his wrath. He praises God for his wrath that God poured out in this moment. Exodus 15, verse 3, The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. He threw Pharaoh's chariot and his army into the sea. The elite of his officers were drowned in the Red Sea. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is a name. With a right hand that is glorious in power, shattering his enemies, shattered like glass. Read verse 8 and 9 again. The enemy said, I will pursue, overtake, divide the spoil. I'll be gratified at their expense. I will draw my sword. My hand will destroy them. They're laughing. They're celebrating before the touchdown. Why? Because this is a layup for them. They know what's coming next. And then compare what the enemy said in their enemy's triumph to what God does in verse 10. He says, But you blew with your breath. The entire might of a nation versus the breath of God. And they were snuffed out like candles. The Lord is a warrior. Kevin DeYoung, a famous pastor, puts a question to us like this. He says, a colossal mess of theology could be exposed By simply asking some Christians in churches, is your God a warrior? Is your God a warrior? Is Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ that you serve, is he a warrior? Or do you view God as someone who is weak? Do you view God as someone that's kind of like your grandpa? You know, like you can just get away with things. He'll just smile and nod his head at you. Is your God a warrior, waging war against anything that threatens the people that he loves from without the enemies of God and from within? Things like sin, things like injustice, things like evil. The Bible speaks of Jesus Christ in a way that he is fighting. Jesus is fighting for his people fighting so much that he went to the cross to die for his people so that he might bring them to new life. That's how serious Jesus was, that you might be brought to life and not remain in death. Jesus Christ is our warrior king. If I can read a verse, it's not going to be on your slide, um, but I was just thinking about this as it shows the character of God from Isaiah 59 verses 9 through 11. This is who God is. Is your God a warrior? Verse 9, speaking of the hopelessness and the injustice in the place that the people of God had found them in, the darkness that they had lived with immoral, God sees this and hears his response. Verse nine, therefore justice is far from us and righteousness does not reach us. We hope for light, but there is darkness. For brightness, but we live in the night. We grope along the wall like the blind. We grope like those without eyes. We stumble at noon as though it were twilight. We are like the dead. Among those who are healthy, we growl like bears We all moan like doves. We hope for justice, but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. That is the state of people that don't have God, the hopelessness. Salvation has not reached them. And it says that God looks in verse 15. This is God's response. It says, "'The Lord saw that there was no justice, "'and he was offended. "'He saw that there was no man.' He was amazed that there was no one interceding, so his own arm brought salvation, and his own righteousness supported him. He put on righteousness as his body armor, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for his clothing, and wrapped himself in zeal of divine passion. Verse 20 The Redeemer will come to Zion and to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. This is the Lord's decree. Jesus is a God who fights for his people. What kind of dad wouldn't fight for his son? What kind of husband wouldn't fight for his beloved? A soldier goes out to war for the love of country and family. How much more would God fight to protect his people out of his love for them? Jesus Christ has fighting for you, for his people. But make no mistake... God is praised for his wrath against the enemies of God. God, I know there's some people in the room that the wrath of God is is a hard topic, and I don't want to treat it lightly, but I just want to say this as we're approaching this, that God is is not an angry tyrant that is arbitrarily angered by things that, that we're just going to slip up in any moment. God is not does not throw childish tantrums and throw hissy fits in the sky. God does not fly off the handle, but he actually shows extreme patience with people that are his enemies for a long, long, long time, much longer than, any, than you and I would ever be comfortable with. If you were reading the biblical story, and we're just taking it at its word, just in, in that moment, He waited 400 years while his people, his beloved ones, the people that he said, these are my firstborn sons, while they were enslaved, he waited and he waited and he waited and he waited 400 years before his wrath came in that moment. God's wrath is so patient. He's so much more patient than you and I are accustomed to. He has patience and 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 patience some more. And he offers some grace and he tries to bring someone back to knowledge and love of him. And by the way, some more patience and patience and patience and patience and patience and patience for years. For some people, it's their entire lives. They live lives that are contrary to God, and He gives them patience. And it says that in His kindness, in His kindness, He gives patience so that they might turn to Him. But the people that are not of Him, the people that have found the gospel, and have become children of God, they are under His wrath. And I just want to plead with you, like the Bible pleads. I don't know where you are. I don't know. That'll, this is. An age where we don't like talking about wrath, and I'm sensitive to that. But the Bible speaks about his wrath. And I just want to encourage you, like John the Baptist encourages, flee the coming wrath of God. Wherever you are, however you're living, live lives that are under the grace of Jesus Christ, because Jesus has taken the wrath of God for you. Romans 5.9 says this, Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from him from the wrath of God. The wrath of God is real. And it is praiseworthy. It is his justice in action. is not something to be ashamed of. I don't know where you are with that. But that is the second stanza. And praise of the wrath of God. Third stanza as we complete our time for the first half, is in praise of God's complete and utter uniqueness. Complete and utter uniqueness. It starts off with this phrase, Lord, who is like you among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, revered with praises, performing wonders? Verse 13, with your faithful love, you will lead the people you have redeemed. Lord, who is like you among the gods? You see, in this context, as Israel is writing this in Exodus 15, they actually believed in many gods. They were polytheistic. They were from a polytheistic culture. They didn't know that there was only one God and that God was revealing themselves over time. And so when they say this, they're like, we, we have believed in other gods. We've heard of Baal. We've heard of Asherah. We've heard of Tiamat and Marduk and all these, all these people that are worshiped. But, but God, we see your actions. Who is like you? We haven't seen anything like you. And then they give four reasons that God is so distinct from anything they have seen. The first one, that God is glorious in holiness, glorious in holiness. Holiness is the essential attribute of the God of the Bible. The very thing that God is, he is holy. The angels cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, every day and night. Holy, holy, holy. The holiness of God is described, if we're just thinking about it, as His sacredness, at His set-apartness, at His divine otherness. And I'm sorry to be a little circular in my reasoning, but holiness kind of just means the, the gap between us and God. What what sets apart God as God and everything else as everything else? That is holiness. It is distinct, sacred. Set apart. And to understand the Old Testament, to understand the God of the Bible, you have to understand that God is not like you. God is holy, holy, holy. He is infinitely holy. And that why that is why his holiness can be so dangerous at times when we approach him with irreverence. It is like the difference between a picture of a drawing of a sun. You've seen that? We've, we've, drawn, we've drawn it in, in third grade. You've seen a drawing of a sun and the actual sun. It might represent, humankind's are called the image of God. We bear his image in some way, but compared to the sun, if you're going to take that to the sun, it'd get burned up in a second. God is holy, and it says that he is glorious in his holiness, And it sets him apart from anything else that we might describe as a God. The second thing that it says, I'm going to go quickly for this for the sake of time, is that he is revered with praises. He is rightly to be feared in praises. I believe it's Psalm 100 that says the God of Israel is enthroned in his praises. Rightly to be feared. Number three that God is performing wonders. We have not seen any other God work miracles, but he doesn't just say work miracles. It says he works wonders, that his miracles are not a side trick. Just look how cool the God of of Israel is. That his miracles, what he does, the crossing of the Red Sea, the turning water to wine, is meant for your jaw to drop and wonder, who is this to marvel at? catch this one number four what sets God apart from all the other gods see they had actually heard of things like glory and power and uh, and they've, they've heard of the idea of wonders but they have never heard of a God who is so utterly unique in his faithful love to his people The Old Testament will speak on and on about what's called the hesed of God, the covenantal faithfulness of God, that God's covenantal faithfulness goes to thousands of generations. And it says that with your faithful love, with your love, you will lead the people out that you have redeemed. This is a completely new concept that God faithfully loves his people like a husband, like a father, faithfully loves his children, like a husband loves his wife. A God who leads them out in his love. Who is like you with your faithful love? Stanza three a God who is completely and utterly distinct. Those are some of the main themes that, we're gonna, that we talked about tonight. Some of the main themes from the Song of Israel. This is the first worship song that is ever sang in the history of the Bible. And it is, in a sense, the last song that ever is sang. And the Bible says that those who love God will worship him forever. The reality is that you and I were made to worship. I want to ask and end our question for this time Do you worship like the Bible worships? That's what we'll talk about in the second half. Take about a four-minute break, and we'll come back. Is this me? Oh, hey, there he is. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Okay, Um, I think that Thanksgiving is second best holiday. I don't know what he's talking about. Just under Christmas, because that is, it's Jesus's birthday, people. My goodness. Jesus's birthday, and then we're thankful for it. My goodness. We're praying for a change in your life. That's what I'm saying. Okay, so the first half The first half, we talked about um, Exodus 15, the first song that Israel sang in praise to the Lord. In the second half, we're talking about you and I being made for worship, made for worship. Have you ever walked by a pond or a lake late at night, and you hear an unmistakable sound of a bullfrog? I'm not going to try and make it, because I don't think I I could do it, but... uh, you have something in your mind and you, you hear it. And the thing is that wherever you are, you hear that sound echoing through the trees. Have you ever walked down the road in the middle of summer and you hear the unmistakable sound of a whippoorwill? Go something along the lines of, see if I can use, I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you even know what that is. Okay. Praise the Lord. I thought that was everyone, that was my experience growing up. I grew up in the country. I hear that every single summer the sound of a whippoorwill singing in the night. How about a cicada? Just buzz. Yeah, you know a cicada. Ah, that's the sound of summer. Yeah, that's the sound of heat, actual heat, just buzzing away incessantly making you just feel hotter. You just start sweating when you hear a cicada. How about uh, the sound of birds chirping early in the morning? Each animal is filling the world with a song it was made to sing. And why does it do that? I mean, you can answer it from a biological perspective, but I don't know if that's a full enough answer. It seems that each creature was made to sing a song. And I want to suggest to you that human beings, you, were also made to have a song to sing as well. You were made to worship God. Made for it. It is your purpose in life that when you are found in worship, When you are living the life that is filled with worship, you are directly in line with what you were made. That is your purpose. You're made to worship God. Did you know that the Bible, the Word of God, commands us to sing? It's kind of an interesting command. Commands you to sing. Psalm 100, enter his gate with thanksgiving. Colossians 3, sing spiritual hymns to Christ. Psalm 98, sing to the Lord a new song. Matt Chandler points out that this command feels a little out of place with the rest of the commands that are in the Bible. Um, Don't kill, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife, and sing. Don't bow down to false idols. Don't sacrifice your children. Oh, and by the way, sing. (laughs) Feels a little odd, but God places that command in there. And I believe that whatever God commands us are meant for his glory and our greatest joy. That we are creatures made to worship. Theologians have pointed out that wherever human beings have been, they are worshiping creatures. Modern science and scientific theory calls us homo sapiens, wise man. But theologians from the past have always called us homo adorans, beings made for worship. Creatures that can't help but worship. The truth is, is that you will worship, regardless if you worship God or you worship anything else, you will worship something in your life. John Calvin, a very famous man in the Reformation, he says that our hearts are idle factories. We just, we just produce things to worship. We, we, just, we just seek around and, and strive to find something to fill a void in our heart, and we devote our life to it we sacrifice to it it becomes our idol in our life we are idol factories just producing them it's the same thing that paul says in romans 1 that we exchange the glory of the lord for created things idol factories is what we are creatures that are made to worship something and i've got bad news for you my friends is that you are what you worship the very same thing that you are devoted to, the very same thing that you sacrifice, you will become just like that. A sports fan who all he can do, he's just so passionate about, about sports, it just, it just consumes him. It's all he wants to talk about. It will eventually become a dad that can't get excited about anything unless the football is on, on Saturdays. It's consumed him. Someone who worships relationships, they bounce around from boyfriend to boyfriend to boyfriend to boyfriend, seeking love, trying to have that that void filled inside of them, are consumed by their own desire for love. Someone who worships the mirror is obsessed with the mirror. They, They become mastered by the mirror. They become slaves to it. We become what we worship. Bad news. But I got good news for you. You become what you worship, and you were made to worship God. And when you worship God, he will begin to work in your life. He will begin to make you just like him. And that is the greatest thing that you could ever hope for in your life, to be image bearers of God in this life. As you are worshiping him in word and in deed. Tonight we're talking about true and po- proper worship. But before we do this, I just want to take some time because there's different things, different struggles that we have when we come to worship. We don't all come to worship on the same level. Uh, some of us are really emotional people. And when, it's, when the, the worship song comes on, the tears start flowing, you know. Uh, some of us are not emotional people. I'm, I'm typically not an emotional person. And it takes a little bit to get the juices flowing. Some of us, we never worship a day in our life, you know. There's, there's different struggles when it comes to worship. And I just want just to take some time and just talk about them. First one that I've seen is that we have no idea what worship is or why we are doing it. No idea. Like, it is kind of an interesting thing. I don't know any other uh, group that meets together for organized singing except for choir. <laughs> <laughs> now, when you sign up for Christianity, you kind of sign up to in part of the choir, I guess. <laughs> um, but some of us, with this idea of, of worship, it's easy to just not understand um, what it is, and we can almost start to blend the idea that, that maybe God is, is really needy. You know, he, he like he just oh, he just needs my praise. He needs me to feed his ego all the time. C.S. Lewis famously had this view before he converted to Christianity. Just don't understand what worship is, and that it is the complete opposite of feeding the ego of God, that he has all that he ever needs, that he is completely full of joy and love, that he did not even need to create, but he created out of sheer love and joy for us and that it is our good pleasure to enter in to worship of him, that we become who we truly were made to be as we begin to worship God rightly. Second thing that I've just seen struggles with worship is some don't worship just because it feels silly it feels silly to sing in public we don't do it very much or maybe you have the phrase like i'm not really a singer i can't really carry a tune reminder the bible tells you to make a joyful noise not a good one so you're good my brother and sister um you're good caleb smith (laughs) just kidding just kidding just kidding Just kidding. Sorry. Focus back in. I had to take it. I had to take it. I don't know why I did. Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. (laughs) Love you, man. Okay. Um, Some of us, we say that I'm not very touchy-feely. You know, I'm not very emotional, and so I don't want to really enter into this. And what we don't see when we have this sense of um, worship is silly or I'm not such a singer and I'm not very touchy-feely, is that it is actually our sense of dignity. It is our sense of dignity and our perception of everyone else that is keeping us from the worship of God. I'm going to come back to that at a later point. But it is our dignity. I'd never raise my hands in worship. I'd never sing because that sounds silly. We begin to care more about what people think than what God thinks. It's One of our struggles. A third struggle that we have is that we make worship all about me, all about me. And this can occur in different ways, and so I'm just gonna really focus on on one. Um, it's a common phrase that when people don't really enter into the the worship service, it's like, I, I didn't, really, didn't really feel it today, or I don't really, I don't really get much out of worship. What well, we don't realize, when we, when we focus on like, I didn't really get much out of worship, is that we made worship about us, which is kind of interesting to think about, because the idea of worship, inherently, is coming and singing praise to someone else. Like, think of it for a moment, like if I had a gift that I was giving to someone, let's say I'm giving a gift to Jake, and then I'm just like, here you go, brother, here's like $20 or something. I give it to him, and I'm like, ah, it's never mind, no, it's just didn't really feel it, didn't really feel it, here's Pierre, take that, I didn't feel it man, I didn't really feel it, you'd be like, oh what the heck's wrong with you, you make the gift about you, when worship is inherently about God, it's inherently not about us, but we make it about us, can I just call it out, we make it emotional idolatry, but how we feel And if we don't get the emotions that we want, or if we're not feeling the emotions of that day, we won't enter into it in that time. Worship has become about us. fourth problem that some of us have with worship is that we see worship as boring. Just boring. So I've been raised in the church. I was basically born on a pew. I was baptized at the age of, I don't know, seven It kind of runs together um, for me. And I have seen a common, if I can just say sickness, in the church throughout all of my life. I have seen a common theme that in the worship service, there will be a wife or a mom that will be praising God with all of her might, with all of her strength. And then right next to her, common, typically... There'll be a dad or a husband, it's just, just bored, you know. Just, just doesn't really want to be there, you know. The same dad, if we can just be honest, that is about to have a stroke in the game, watching the football game the day before, is just it doesn't really want to be in the worship service that day. Doesn't really find worship that appealing. he's bored. He's bored. Very common among men. I was actually uh, sitting in um, church this Sunday and we were singing a song um, uh, from Revelation. Um, The song goes something along the lines of Glory and honor and power and dignity be ever for you, God Almighty. And if I can just be honest, I was like really getting into it. Like I was, I was getting after it. As much as a, a person from my uh, sort of Baptist backgrounds can get after it and, and worship. I, I raised my hands from here to here. It was a big time, okay? <laughs> I was getting after it and worship. I was really feeling it because, because in that moment, that revelation song, that's the song that is being sang before God right now. And if the story is true, that is a song that I will sing before God for the rest of my life. I'm entering into it in a moment. And right in front of me, there is a lady and a husband. And the lady is really singing it to you. Like, we were, we were in the same. We were both, she wasn't Baptist. She was hands fully raised. <laughs> uh, and she was singing with all her might. And her husband um, was seated. It really wasn't. Well, he's seated throughout the whole song. I didn't really think anything of it. I don't really want to judge during worship. I'm trying to focus on God, not on everyone else. Um, Then the next song came, and he's seated. And the next song came, and he's seated. And I'm just like, eventually, I just look over. I just don't even know, like, I want to know what's going on. And this man is playing Tetris on his phone. He's playing Tetris. Now, just hold on a second. Like... If he was playing Angry Birds, I could get behind it. But Tetris is the most <laughs> boring game in the world. Really, it is. And this man found playing Tetris as more interesting than worshiping God who he was made to worship. I just wanted to grab him. I just wanted to shake him. Just be like, what are you doing? Like, what, what is happening? right now in this moment but I couldn't one because I didn't know that man and that would probably not go well for his experience with Christ but the second reason is there's been so many times that's been me in church and so many times that's been you just bored not really feeling it not really wanting to enter into it not seeing with the eyes of faith what is happening before the throne in that moment so I can't enter in We aren't able to see the reality of what worship is meant to be. And so some of us struggle with trying to have the faith to get there with our emotions, with our minds, with our affections. We need to have a complete renewal when it comes to the worship of the Lord. And I need to go very, very fast because I promised you I'd be done in four minutes. Point number one, when it comes to true worship... We're not getting done in four minutes. (laughs) Sorry, Micah. Um, True worship is a response to God. It is a response to God. Look at Exodus 15. The Israelites are saved and they respond to the Lord with song. They did nothing. The Lord fought for them. Worship springs out of a deep awareness of the reality of what God has done for you. That we are saved from eternal death to life. Saved? Can you help but sing after that? Have you ever had a moment when the gospel just like hits you? You know, it just it just hits you when the the truths that you believe they just become real for you in a way that's like, did I just say that? Do I really believe that? Is that true? Is that my reality? I have those moments sometimes in the middle of a conversation on discipleship, or I have those in, in the middle of a sermon. One time I was speaking. On Luke 23 or something um, about uh, Jesus washing his disciples feet and it just struck me the humility of the Lord Jesus that he would stoop so low and he would wash his disciples feet I I had to stop in the middle of sermon I almost started crying I'm not an emotional man and it's like an awkward time I have to like pause and people are like what's going on I just, it, just, it just hit me like the truth of the gospel True worship is a response, and it is a response from the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are a person who doesn't like worship and it's hard to enter into worship, I challenge you. Go and stare at the cross as long as you can. Stare at the moment when a person gave up their life for you, taking the wrath that was meant for you. Stare and remember that that was God himself taking your place because he loved you. Stare at the love of God poured out on the cross, and you cannot help but worship. It will become real. Go and stare at the cross. True worship is a response. Second thing, true worship is with your entire life. Let's go back to Tetris Man for a second and many other people that struggle with it that are bored in the sermon. They're bored in the worship and sermon. Um, Why can't they enter into worship? Why is that so common? Why is there so many people that are just bored and and they just like it? Um, Could be the next point, which we'll get to in a second. Or it could be that they have not learned this lesson. That public worship, public worship is a continuation of their private worship. That those who worship God throughout their entire week, they come to Sunday and they articulate that worship. Those who don't worship God in private are going to struggle when it comes to worshiping God in public. It makes sense that those Monday through Saturday, worship is not in their lives, in their actions, in their words, in their relationships. It's not in their minds. They're not going to want public worship. And if it was that case, then we have a case of what the Bible calls religious hypocrisy. And what Isaiah 29 speaks is rather strong when it comes to this. Isaiah 29 says that, that these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Hypocritical worship. When it's not worshiping in private and then coming on Sunday to articulate that worship that we are called to we are called to worship God with our entire lives every part of us the answer to this is Romans 12:1 which says present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and pleasing to God every part of you all the time and then Paul says that this every part of you present your bodies to God, this is your true and proper worship. True worship is with your entire lives. That leads us to our third point. True worship is from the heart. It's from the heart. Which I know sounds a little redundant because the second, the, the next, last point was just uh, worship with our entire lives. And, and then we're saying from the, from the heart. But you'll see the point here in a second. Um, true worship is from within. It's from the emotions and it is unrestrained. You know when someone says something to you, something kind, maybe like an I love you, and it doesn't really like just doesn't really come from within, you know, like I love you. I love you. I love you, whatever. It's like, bro, say it with the chest. Say it like you mean it, you know? Called to say things like you mean it. You know when someone says it from the heart. When you love someone and are near them, and you don't care who you don't care who is watching, you just want to be around them. It's unrestrained. It's from the heart. That's why PDA is a thing, because people are so focused on the other person. There's a I was walking around in my neighborhood one day, and uh, I saw. Um, just for the sake of time, I saw two teenagers making out in a slide in, in the middle of a um, in the middle of a, a parking, it was, it was a play, playground for kids. You know, I was like, what the heck? And I look over there and I'm just like, one, that's really weird. Two, don't do that, don't be that. But three, the one thing that I didn't doubt is that they meant it because man, they did not care what, what, that I was there. They totally did not care. If I can say this, at the, at the risk of being a little cheesy, um, and I, I mean it I'm trying to be real, I'm not trying to be cheesy, that what else is worship but public display of affection to God? It comes from the heart. You have to mean it. It has to be unrestrained. You can't be scared of what people think. And to, for it to come from the heart, for worship that is from the heart, it must be Undignified. It must not care what everyone else in the room are worried about. Let me tell you a story. Um, King David was a man after God's own heart. He wrote many of the worship songs in the Bible. He was a roller coaster for man at times, but at the very least, he really tried to praise the Lord. And any time he messed up in the darkest of his messes, he always repented and sought God after that. He was a man who sought God with all of his heart. And in that time, the presence of God was in a box. It's called the Ark of the Covenant. And for them to be around God, they'd go to the box that was in the temple, okay? And then one time in 2 Samuel 6, the box, the God box, had gone to a different country And people lost their minds because that was God's presence for them. It was not God within us that Jesus promises. It was God in that moment. And God was in a faraway place. And then through a really cool set of events, you have to go read this story. 2 Samuel 6, I think 2 Samuel 5. God orchestrated himself to come back to his people. And when King David, the man after God's own heart, saw that God was back with his people... He lost his mind. It says that he praised the Lord with a loud voice. It said that he stripped down to a linen ephod, which is the priestly garment, maybe half naked. I'm not entirely sure. It said he had horns going. It said he danced before the Lord with all his might. All of his might. Can you just imagine that? It's not just you doing that. This is the leader of a country making himself look like an idiot in his praise and worship of God. Can you imagine the things that are being said? Can you imagine the things that are being said today if that happened? Can you imagine what Twitter would do? The people would, be, people would say kind of things that they would say then. It's like, he's the king. He's supposed to be dignified. This isn't right. His wife rebuked him. They said, this is, you look like an idiot. She came up with, him with disgust her mouth dripping with sarcasm, and he responded this, I was dancing before the Lord. Yes, and I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. True worship has to come from the heart. You can't care what everyone else here looks like. You are speaking to the Lord. What would it take for you to worship God with all of your might, like King David? I want to know, too. That's how, it, may that be described of us. Third point, final point, fourth point true worship is Christ centered, and that is the opposite of me centered that you come to worship not because of what you get out of it, but you come to worship because the one you worship is so worthy. It is all about Jesus, all about Jesus. Worship is about seeing and entering the all-surpassing glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy One who is infinitely above us. He invites us in to worship from the relationship that he's given us. I want to end with the same song that we began, but it's actually saying in the end, in Revelation, as the story goes, there is another crossing of a sea, but this time the sea is like glass. There's peace. There is another defeat of an enemy of God's people, but this time it is the ancient defeat of that serpent, Satan, and it is final. And those that are found in Jesus, in that time, in Revelation 15, it says that they sing a new yet very, very old song. They sang the song of God's servant, Moses, and of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. It says, Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. At the end of it all, we will say then what was said all the way back in Exodus 15. That God is my strength and my song; that He has become my salvation through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that's true for you. And I hope that's true for me at the end. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for tonight. Um, I pray what I was just praying before that uh, we are all just undignified before you. I know we're going to worship now, God, and I just pray that whatever it means for us to worship you with our might, God, I pray that we can. God, you're so worthy of it. You saved us. You saved your people. It's what you do. God, I just pray for some kind of thanksgiving and gratitude to just come out of us and that you would be praised like you deserve in a small, small way. I also pray, Lord, That the people here in these pews, that they could know that you, Jesus, are a God who fights for them. That the Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. I pray that they would know you. And I pray that they'd come to worship you in spirit and in truth. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.